0: Romans 11:1 tonight, please. Don't forget the ladies are planning this bus trip. I highly recommend, very highly recommend this. Jonah October 9th. Get the slip. And also, this doesn't happen very often. We've been invited somewhere as a church. Joint Community Church picnic. Pastor Brown announced it last night, but tonight he chose the elements of the cosmos over the Word of God because he's going to see earth, wind, and fire. Get it? The elements of the cosmos. But it's Sunday, August 20th, 2017, which is, it's coming up. But anyone that wants to, I think it's a good time to it'd be okay to mix it up with some other believers memorial park 1500 stevenson boulevard that's sunday the 20th fellowship food and fun if the fellowship doesn't get you the food will and children are welcome so jim you can go all right romans 11 we started we did a sort of a preamble to romans 11 last night And we're going to go right into the verse, but there is kind of a title tonight. There is a subject, and it's one that's been on my mind for a few months, and I'm simply going to call it Paul himself. There's something about Paul himself. It's a couple of moments of silent preparation. We need this quiet time. Especially Brian, because he just spent some moments with Jim, so we need to uh, sanctify ourselves. (laughs) Father, we thank you for this opportunity of fellowship in your word. We pray that you'll open the eyes of our hearts tonight, as we always ask, so that we can see the hope of our calling We can see the glorious riches of our inheritance. We can understand the power that raised Jesus from the dead, and we can understand all of this by gazing into his face. For it is in his face that your glory shines, Father. The glory of the Father that raised him from the dead shines from his face. We thank you for he who was crucified in weakness and who lives by the power of God. We are also weak in him. And yet we live by that same power toward one another. Help us to choose the life of the messianic age and refuse the life of the Adamic ontology tonight. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Last night the preamble included a theme that I think is extremely important. I just want to reiterate it just for a second. And it's called elective elitist arrogance. It's something that the word of God reproves And Paul takes quite a bit of time out in reproving it. Elitist, let's call it elective, but I'm going to maybe even make it more specific, not just elective, but exclusive or exclusivist. Exclusivist. Elective. um, Exclusivist. Elitist. Arrogance. Now you see this again. All scripture is profitable for reproof as well as for correction, for instruction in righteousness, for training in the divine act of deliverance. Elective exclusivist arrogance or exclusivist elitist arrogance. This is something that the Bible reproves, but Paul takes a specific section out especially Romans 11:17 and following all the way through 12:3 where he actually climaxes by saying that I say to you by the grace that was given to me to stop basically stop being arrogant and this kind of arrogance is the epistemology or the way of knowing of the old age and it's something that people take on when they read Romans 9 through 11, they take on the subject of what about these vessels of wrath fitted for destruction, vessels of mercy? What about I hate Esau and I love Jacob? What, what about this? Does this distinguish humanity into two segments, one elect, one non-elect? Is there a double predestination? All of that arises from an exclusivist, elitist arrogance. Arrogance. Elijah had it. He was afflicted with it. Jonah had it with a vengeance. Jonah had Resanthema with it. And he had to be, he was not converted from that until after all the Ninevites were converted. Which is, to me, a picture of the eschatological salvation where all the nations come in first and then all Israel is saved. Represented in Jonah. And speaking of representatives, Paul stands as a representative. So let's consider Romans chapter 11 in itself. Let's go right to the passage. In reply to Romans 10:20, showing that Romans 11 has to be taken with what has gone before. In Romans 11:20, in which Isaiah speaks for Yahweh about the Gentiles, and I find this quite Interesting here. He quotes Isaiah sixty five one in Romans ten twenty. Again, this shows that Romans eleven hangs together with what with what has gone before, not just ten twenty and twenty one, all the way to nine one. Nine one through eleven thirty six is competition with Romans five twelve to twenty one. And with First Corinthians fifteen, twenty to twenty-eight, it's competition with being the number one universalistic passage in Paul's epistles and in all the Word of God. It's in competition for it. I think Romans five twelve to twenty one ekes it out, especially with five eighteen and nineteen as I've been teaching, and so does first Corinthians fifteen, especially twenty-four to twenty-eight, as we've been teaching. But this one, it's in the race. And it's, in, it's like in a bunched group of horses just at the finish line, and it's a photo finish. So we want to consider Romans 11. Again, immediately it's a reply or a rejoinder to Isaiah 65, 1, quoted in 1020. And I've translated it this way. But Isaiah comes out boldly and speaking for Yahweh says... I was found by those who were not seeking me. I love that. I was found by those who were not seeking me. We're talking here about prevenient grace. We're talking here about unconditional grace. Found by those not seeking me. And then he says, I revealed myself. And that word is emphanes and it looks, speaking of E words, let's do another E word. E-M-P-H-A-N-E-S Phanes Romans 11.1 1. or rather Romans 10.20 quoting Isaiah 65.1 Emphanes is related to Fanarao, to be manifest or to be revealed, is related in turn to apocalypto, to be unveiled. These are all what we would call apocalyptic terms. These are terms of stunning revelation. That's what the gospel is. It's a revelation of the righteousness of God, which is divine Action taken for our salvation because our salvation could not arise from anything within the sphere of this world. It had to come from outside the sphere of this world, outside the sphere of sinful humanity. I was found by those not seeking me. I revealed myself. An apocalyptic expression to those who were not asking for me. In Romans 10.21, Paul quotes Isaiah. Really, it's there are three books in Isaiah. There's Proto-Isaiah, there's Deutero-Isaiah, which is the most significant in terms of the New Testament, 40 through 55 of Isaiah. And then there's Trito isaiah the third Isaiah, starts 56 to 66. But they're all called Isaiah, and rightly so. And so he says, Isaiah, again, in 21, speaking for Yahweh about Israel. He speaks for Yahweh about the nations, and he's very bold. And then he speaks about Israel. And he seems to be quite negative. But to Israel, he says, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and defiant people. Now, so Paul takes this on and he says, now does this mean, since it seems like he's favoring the Gentiles and disfavoring the Jews here, or disfavoring Israel, Does it? if it seems like this, he goes on later to reprove the Gentiles for thinking that they're special and for thinking that I was grafted in because branches were broken off. Paul says to them, well, he takes them on and he reproves their elective, exclusivist arrogance. Something that's sadly saturated the churches of the West for thousands, I'll say hundreds of years. Now, I must be careful to note that the opening of Romans 11 does not look back only to those verses, because there is an immediate reply to those verses in Romans eleven one, But he looks back all the way to nine one, And I'm indebted again, because right after I said this, I read Ernst Cosiman, who noted this. He said the opening, that is Romans eleven one looks back to chapters 9 and 10, not just to the conclusion of chapter 10. Last night we also saw a connection between Romans 9 through 11 and the so-called pastoral epistles of Paul. And there is a, a phenomenal connection there. So on page 299 of the Romans 1980 series by Ernst Cosman, he, he pulled me up a little short and said, listen, it's not just those two verses that Romans 11 is looking back at, but the whole of the, two, the section, Romans 9 to 11. It's a section of Scripture Again, that is in competition with Romans five twelve to twenty one and with 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty to twenty eight as being the most universalistic passage in the Pauline epistles. So this section has to hang together in order to properly interpret the Holy Spirit's purpose. It is destructive to true interpretation. To atomize this section, and by atomize I mean A-T-O-M-I-Z-E, pull out little pieces of it. It is destructive to true interpretation, to atomize this section, to draw attention to passages about election and rejection, about vessels of wrath fitted for destruction and vessels of mercy without understanding the wide horizon of the passage as a whole. That's the key to the interpretation of this. This three-chapter section dramatically unveils that God's justice occurs within the larger sphere of his mercy. And that his wrath, even, occurs within the sphere of his love. That's important. Everything from romans nine one onward leads to romans eleven thirty two, which is god's will and thus god's inevitable act because god's intention and action are one they cannot be separated even as the cross and the resurrection cannot be separated romans eleven thirty two Advertises God's will and thus God's inevitable act of having mercy on all. And last night the title was Pleroma, the totality of the nations plus PAS, P-A-S, all of Israel equals all of humanity. The more I do this, the more I want to just teach Romans from one one all the way through sixteen twenty seven. But we'll see. That in turn, Romans eleven thirty two in turn leads to a climactic doxology. That's another word that's going to be very important to us. Doxology. D o x o l. I've got to hit the right square here. What's that? Oh, you can't see it anyways. All right. Doxology. D-O-X-O-L-O-G-Y. Doxology. And I guess I'll have to print this out and s- set it out at the information table so you can get all those things I spelled that you didn't see. But doxology comes from the Greek word doxos plus Logos. And it means a word about God's glory. It means an attribution of God to the glory that he deserves and that he's worthy of from all of creation. God doesn't need people to glorify him, but people need to glorify him for their happiness. Doxology, then, is a granting of or the attribution of glory where it belongs. Salvation is of the Lord. Glory belongs to the Lord. Glory belongs to the Father because it was the glory of the Father that raised Jesus from the dead after an unspeakably shameful and scandalous and ungodly death. The cross is an ungodly thing because it's the only way God has or the only way God has chosen to justify ungodly people, to justify the ungodly. And that's what he does. He rectifies the ungodly, Romans 4, 5. It's destructive to true interpretation to atomize this section. And this three-chapter section dramatically unveils that God's justice occurs within this larger sphere of his mercy. That is, in fact, that his mercy rejoices over judgment, which is the main message I thought, that one of the main takeaways I took from the Jonah production In Lancaster. Which was phenomenal. So Romans 11.32. He will show mercy upon all. Leads in turn to a climactic doxology. An ecstatic recognition. Of God's saving wisdom. 11.33 to 36. And I say saving wisdom. Because when you think about wisdom. It's 2 Timothy 3.15 comes up. The scriptures are able to make you wise about salvation, wise about salvation, wise with regard to the salvation that is by the faithfulness of Christ Jesus. And so Romans 11:33 to 36 celebrates the universal return of all creation back to the Father and the glory of God the Father. So it's a climactic doxology an ecstatic recognition of God's saving wisdom. Nevertheless, Romans 11.1 1 does look, does look, and we have to remember this, it does look immediately back to Romans 10.20-21. 20 so Paul then asks, I reply then by asking. God has not rejected his people. He uses the word people, laon, forget it, L-A-O-N in the Greek. It's back on okey doke, Laon, like Laon, like the country of Laos, the L-A-O-N, and it's found in Romans 10, 21, and Paul repeats it. I've held out my hands to a disobedient and defiant people, Laon. And now he says, so I'm asking, God has not rejected his people, Laon, has he? Speaking of Israel. To which I also reply, most certainly not. Is it still on? Meganoito. M-E-G-E-N-O-I-T-O. Meganoito! Exclamation point. Which means many things. Perish the thought. Absolutely not. Most certainly not is how I translate it. God has not rejected his people has he to which i also reply most certainly not for i myself here's paul himself i myself am also an israelite of the seed of abraham tribe of benjamin now the rabbis used to teach that the tribe of benjamin was significant for many reasons for one reason, not just the rabbis teaching it, but the scriptures teach it. Benjamin was always in a redemptive collusion that seems to be the word of the day lately. Collusion with the tribe of Judah. The tribe of Judah produced the humanity of Jesus Christ. The tribe of Benjamin produced people like Saul of the Old Testament, Jeremiah the prophet with whom Paul identified very clearly in Romans, or rather in Galatians 1, to 15, and 16, along with Jeremiah 1, 5 through and following. But it also is apparent that, at least by tradition, rabbinic tradition, Benjamin was the first tribe into the Red Sea, in, to be delivered through the Red Sea, the first tribe in. And that's in, it's very significant because Paul speaks of himself as being First, as being representative in the redemptive act of God in Christ, which the Red Sea, the splitting of the Red Sea, of course, symbolizes that because it's an act of God. There was nothing that a man could do to make that sea split wide open and allow the passage of two million people across on dry land. You tell me what kind of action of humanity or feat of human engineering could have produced that instantly, it's a divine act. So is our redemption. So is universal redemption. So is resurrection. So is the reconciliation of all things. Benjamin was the first tribe in. Now let's say that tradition is true. It would be significant here because Paul makes a big deal out of being of the tribe of Benjamin not only here but also in Second Corinthians 11 around 22 and also in Philippians 3, 5, and 6. He said, if I wanted to boast in the flesh... I could do it better than anybody else because of all these things I got going for me in the flesh. But I count it all as, well, you know. Never mind. So then, most certainly not, for I myself am also an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, tribe of Benjamin. This opens up an altogether separate topic in Better Call Paul, BCP, that being simply Paul himself. Paul himself is a subject that's as big as all of his epistles because of what he represents, because of who he stands in. And Paul himself is a phenomenon of the age, the present age that we're living in. J.L. Martin, and this really hit me and stayed with me, and this is one of the few things I didn't have to take an hour looking it back up again because I opened opened his commentary, and the first time I turned, it was right there. But in Galatians, his 97... Commentary on Galatians, on page 280. He calls Paul the paradigmatic eschatological anthropos. Now, that's a lot. A paradigmatic, are we still on? Let me hit this screen twice. See, this is for you that speak. What's going to happen? Nothing. So I hit this screen. My technical skills are remarkable. Have you noticed that? so then I hit that screen and then it blanks the page he is he calls Paul the paradigmatic we still on I just have to pause and admire my penmanship it's a, it's a, a paradigmatic eschatological anthropos has to stick in another Greek word here. Now, I don't like this acronym, P-E-A. Paul is the P. So I would put man there instead, P-E-M. So Paul is a paradigmatic eschatological man or human being. He's right. And I've thought about it ever since then. He's on, he is, in fact, Paul is clear here that he is as the paradigm or exemplar of God's will to save. In fact, he is the exemplar or the paradigm, the pattern, the paradigm, that we could call it prototype, whatever you want to call it. Paul is a prototype. He's a paradigm. He's a pattern. He's a model. He is a living epistle of God's will to save. In a way, Paul's kind of like saying, if he saved me, then he's sure going he sure to save these people called Israel. He surely is. So I like that. The paradigmatic eschatological anthropos. He is the paradigm of God's will to save all of humankind more than any other person. And he is the paradigm of God's will to recapitulate all things and all beings as well as all anthropoi, plural, humankind in Christ. God's will to recapitulate all humanity in Christ. Paul is a pattern of that. What I've been saying is that this recapitulation, a term used by Irenaeus and others of the patristic theologians, this recapitulation only comes by instauration. That's instauration, the cross, the crucifixion. Instauration, that's my... Word I've stolen from Francis Bacon. I'm not going to explain the whole thing of that, the whole origin of that, but I will someday in writing, I hope. Instaration, the root word from the Sanskrit S T A U down to the Greek S T A U R O S, which is the cross. Starizzo is crucifixion. And so instaration is what God is doing to the whole of the universe. He is, it's the universal impact, the universal redemptive impact of the cross of Jesus Christ. So the only way there's recapitulation of all things in Christ in Ephesians 1.10 is by instauration, by crucifixion of Jesus Christ, who in his incarnation embodied all humanity. And in his instauration or his crucifixion, he embodied all creation as well as he did in his incarnation. So that in his resurrection, he embodies all humanity and all creation as a life-giving spirit. So in Christ, all will be made alive. Not only all humans, all things, all beings. First Timothy 6.13 with First 1 Corinthians 15.22. Epitomizing this reality is Paul himself. Like Jonah walking on the beach after being spit up after three days and three nights in the belly of a denizen of the deep, he must have been a phenomenon. He must have been quite the phenomenon. So was Paul, because Paul said, epitomizing this reality of instauration, Paul said, I was crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. In fact, if you put Galatians 2.19 to 2.20, and they belong together, he said, for I, through the law, through the Torah, died to the Torah, that I would live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. Christo sunestaromaia." The, the root word is in there, stauros. I was crucified with Christ. So the paradigmatic eschatological human being, Paul, is that by having been permanently instaurated, permanently identified, and forever stigmatized, marked by the crucified Messiah. He even said, I bear in my body the stigmati of Christ. This is true for all of us because once crucified with Christ, we are stigmatized by the cross forever and permanently as Jesus was and as he is. In the paradigmatic eschatological anthropos, Paul is the paradigm of all humankind in the eschatos Adam, That's what Jesus is called in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He is called ha Adam. Adam." He is now a life-giving spirit in whom all humankind are to be made alive. He is recapitulated. Paul is recapitulated now in the second man he's called. Jesus is called the second man. He's called the one from heaven. Paul then bears his image in a significant way. More so, I think, than other believers do. He bears his image in a significant way, even in this life. Even in this life, in his flesh. In the flesh. The reason for this is that he lives after co-crucifixion with Christ. Nevertheless, it is not ultimately Paul who lives, but Christ who lives in him. And so listen carefully, because this, I think, is a fine-tuning of doctrine we've taught before. It's not quite that the old man is Saul and the new man is Paul. That's true, but it's not quite that. It is that the new man is Christ in Paul. The old man is Paul in association with the old Adam. Or better, it is the old Adam in Saul slash Paul. In fact, Romans 7, 7 to 25 can only be truly interpreted if we understand that the I there is the Adam in Paul, not Paul. The Adam in all mankind, in fact, The Adam in all. In fact, it's kind of like Adam talking. And he ends up thanking God through Jesus Christ for the victory that saves the wretched man that I am. The old man is Paul in association with the old Adam. It is, in other words, the old Adam in Paul. As the exemplary, eschatological, redeemed human being in Christ. Paul lives in the sphere of the faithfulness of the Son of God. He lives in the sphere. And so you and I, as eschatological anthropoi, as people of the messianic age, live within the sphere of the faithfulness of the Son of God. I was crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. And yet it is not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live within the sphere of, we could say, as well as by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He was handed over for our sins. He was resurrected for our rectification. So as the exemplary eschatological redeemed human being in Christ, Paul walks around and lives in the sphere of the faithfulness of the Son of God. He does not have a stitch left of the old self-righteousness. He has no confidence whatsoever in the flesh, in what he is in Adam. He is intensely aware of, that the Son of God loved him and, and still loves him, that the Son of God gave himself for him. Paul, as the P.E.M., paradigmatic eschatological man, does not set aside the grace of God, as so many do, who assume that either their works or their general piety are the means and source of their rectification rather than the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to death rather than the faithfulness of the one who was impaled on a Roman tree on a Roman cross then raised from the dead by the glory of his father. So I would say that Paul is a living exhibit a if we want to use a courtroom analogy, Paul is a living exhibit a of God's will to save he is a living piece of evidence of God's will to rectify or set right the ungodly. He is a walking proof of God's great intention. Which is to recapitulate everything in Christ. Through an instauration that cannot be segregated from a glorious reg- resurrection. Now I say this about Paul because in measure it's true for all of you it's true for all of us but Paul is just the paradigm of it none of us have had the experience that Paul had outside the streets of Damascus none of us have had his apostolic calling none of us have been given quite the grace of Paul none of us have probably really suffered internally as Paul did ultimately suffered death at the hands of the Romans thanks to the religious enemies that betrayed him over as they did with Jesus. Paul is an omen then, a positive omen of the universal redemptive impact of the cross of Christ. Now this is expressed in an explicit way by Paul in 1 Timothy 1. Let's turn there just for a moment. I'm not going to get into the provenance of these provenance not providence but providence of the pastoral epistles because I have something building that I think will glorify God in a great way in considering the pastoral epistles. But in 1 Timothy 1:15-16 Paul expresses this paradigmatic eschatological person this will of God to save in an explicit way. First Timothy 1, 15 to 16, Here is a reliable statement. Worthy of total acceptance. Messiah Jesus came into the world. Please notice. He entered the cosmos from outside. Because the solution to creation's plight. Must come from its creator. This is my comment on this. The solution and means of setting right the gone wrong Adam and all of creation with him must come from outside the creation. So the very fact that Christ Jesus came into this world is stunning to me because it means he came into a world that was terribly gone wrong, but he had to come into it from outside. There is no way of redeeming this world except by an otherworldly solution, the irresistible invasion of God's grace in the person of Jesus Christ, who is filled with grace and truth. So here's a reliable statement worthy of total acceptance. Messiah Jesus came into the world to save sinners, or we could say to rectify the ungodly but to save sinners sinners are people in responsible guilt as well as under an alien power called sin. There's two things about sinners. We as sinners, we live in a responsible guilt. There's a responsibility. We're not only part of the sinful Adam by birth, but we have been actively complicit in sinfulness. If you're an exception to that, stop coming to church. We'll build a shrine to you someday and wear orange robes and chant your name. To save sinners, that's people in responsible guilt and under the alien suprahuman power called SIN, capital S-I-N, of which I am the first Protoss, I'm the prototype, I'm the first. Note here that Paul is not just the first of sinners, but the first of sinners saved by Messiah Jesus, of whom I am the first, those sinners saved by Messiah Jesus. Not first chronologically, but first representatively, prototypically. He's the first of sinners because he's also the worst of sinners. So that no one can say Christ can't or Christ won't save me. As Cain said, my iniquity is too great. This punishment is too great. I can't, he he can't do anything for me. Paul is a testimony of the overflowing grace. If you look back just for a moment to one fourteen of 1 Timothy 1, you see that Paul is a testimony of the overflowing grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, along with the faithfulness and love that are in Christ Jesus. The faithfulness of Christ and his love by which he gave himself for Paul, along with the overflowing grace, which is, as I will demonstrate, irresistible grace. You say, how can we frustrate grace if it's irresistible? We can only temporarily set it aside and therefore forfeit the life of the coming age by loving our life in this world, which is loving our life as it's defined by the evil age. This message has to cohere together with last night's message for that to make sense. So no one can say... I'm not the beneficiary of the faithfulness and love of the Messiah. Oh, yes, you are. You can't say, I can't pronounce it, I forget his name, Kim Jun Il or Kim Jun Un or whatever his name is. No Nogo, No Go, North Korea. You can't say he's not the beneficiary. of the overflowing grace of God because he is. Now I can't get excited like some of the pastors that are talking to our president about nuking North Korea because there are hundreds of thousands. There are millions of innocents under a dictator there. First of all, what I would rather have to happen in North Korea is what happened in Nineveh. The king on down getting converted. That's just my, my heart's desire. Eventually it will happen. But evangelical Christians, especially the kinds that like to call themselves conservatives, and they like to call themselves patriots, and they're not. And I'm going to show you something here about Paul. He's not speaking patriotically. When he has solidarity with Israel He's speaking About having solidarity with God's will To save an unworthy people American patriotism Becomes evil When it fails to recognize The sinful condition of all human beings Including our founders Including all Americans Including the most illustrious Of them And when the symbol of a flag is more important than the symbol of the cross, damn that patriotism. That's what I say. That's my personal belief. Because I have something that overrides my American patriotism. It is the word of God whereby we are called to live unto the one who was raised from the dead. And he was shamefully executed on a cross a friend of mine from a long time ago who visited this place recently texted me today and he said is God okay like that evangelistic pastor said last night on television is God okay with nuking North Korea because he thinks that's what my Christian beliefs say is he okay with assassinating this leader is he okay with you think that God is okay with that the Bible says he takes no pleasure in the death of the ungodly. And his vengeance isn't like that. Now that may happen. Those terrible things might happen. There may be things happening which are catastrophic both to North and South Korea and the United States of America. We haven't known this yet. America hasn't really known. They've known The 9 11 thing, which they've almost turned into a citadel of idolatrous worship. But they have not known something like Hiroshima or Nagasaki. They have not known. We have not known things like that. And I hope we never do. But when you think of these evil nations, think about Jonah. And he was reluctant he didn't want him to be saved he was really ticked off when after 40 days God did as I said last Sunday he did overthrow Nineveh because the word overthrow is katastropho turned upside down he turned him upside down he rectified the king all the way down portrayed beautifully incidentally at sights and sounds I recommend it to all you can't get there this year get there some year Because of the vision that Glenn Eshelman had has been realized. But let's continue. No one can say, I'm not the beneficiary of the faithfulness and love of the Messiah and have it be true. Someone can say, I reject the faithfulness and love of the Messiah. That's fine. But no one can say, I'm not the beneficiary of it and be true. One may, and this is very important for you to know because this is really practical now. One may for a time or even for a lifetime set aside, the word is atheteo, to frustrate the grace of God. It means to set it aside. One may for a time or even for a lifetime set aside the overflowing grace of Christ. But it's ultimately irresistible. Last night, it was George Thoroughgood, Bad to the Bone and Who Do You Love. Tonight, it's Guess Who? The new mother nature come to call. She's getting us all. I hope that doesn't put that tune into your head, but I kind of liked it. I didn't like the message, but like the new mother nature of the Guess Who song, The overflowing grace of God is getting us all. It's getting us all. It's the new creation come to call. It's getting us all. When you're my age, songs come back to you from the 60s, even though I was born in the 90s. If Chuck were here tonight, he'd say, yeah, the 1890s. But among the trustworthy statements of the pastoral epistles, and there are several, how about first Timothy three 1, 2 Timothy two eleven, Titus three eight, and this one? There appears the trustworthy statement of first Timothy four nine to ten, which Paul says, We have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all humanity. That was his name after this epistle was written. The I think the pastoral epistles stand between Paul and the patristic theologians. And it's the interpretation of Paul, and it's therefore canonical. It's therefore just as Holy Spirit, God-spirated as any other scriptures. But I think there's a pseudepigraphic element to it, meaning using Paul, but summarizing and interpreting Paul at the same time. I'm going to lead you into this gradually, and you don't have to accept it about the pastoral epistles but let's agree right from the start and all the way through that they are of the canon of Scripture and that they are God-breathed. But in this passage, he is called Soter Panton Anthropon, Savior of all human beings. That's what he was called by the patristic theologians, the males and the females, including Melania, who was a famous patristic theologian who had an influence on many of the male patristic theologians theologians one of the most famous names of jesus christ was soter pantone soter s-o-t-e-r pantone famous word last word in revelation soter pantone anthropon savior of all men that was his name and to call him that now is honorable to him he is soter pantone anthropon savior of all humanity that's what he's called in 1 Timothy 4.10. He is the savior of all humanity, especially, notice that word, it's Malone in the Greek, M-A-L-L-O-N. Especially those who believe. Especially of those who believe. Please notice, especially, not exclusively. Elitist, exclusivist arrogance, which we started with, And we're ending with says he is the savior exclusively of those who believe this verse which is entirely trustworthy means you can put all your savings in that bank and be sure that it's going to get interest and pay interest forever he is the savior of all humanity especially of those who believe, but not exclusively of those who are presently believing. I believe that everybody's going to believe, so we have a point of agreement. If you think that God's grace is conditioned upon human faith, I can show you in the scriptures that all human beings will eventually believe. And those of you that agree, perhaps, with Torrance and myself and others who believe that it's unconditional grace we agree on that we agree on one thing that grace will be to all God is the deliverer of all humanity that's another way of putting it this is the apocalyptic revelation of his righteousness and please notice that because that's the key to the interpretation of the epistle of Paul to the Romans Meaning that his righteousness, God's righteousness, is his will and his saving action in Christ. God's intention is one with his action. Two verses suffice to at least testify to that. Isaiah 46.10, Jeremiah 32.19. His intention and his action... God's intention and his action can no more be separated than the cross and the resurrection. God's intention and his action can no more be separated from each other than the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. God's intention is validated by his action, even as the resurrection is is the validation of the crucifixion of Jesus, and it's also his vindication. 1 Timothy 3.16, he who was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit. Vindication by the Spirit indicates the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So he goes from unspeakable shame to indescribable glory. Paul is the exemplar of that saved humanity. Paul is the paradigm, he is the exemplar of that saved humanity. A humanity which in the eschatological age or in the final finality of human history will indeed be in the state of soteria, salvation, along with all of creation. As Yahweh said to Jonah in the last verse of that book in Jonah 4.11, should I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left, as well as many animals? As well as many animals. That's the last phrase. Does God care for all of creation or just mankind? Especially mankind, but not exclusively mankind. He even cares for animals. Since I knew that, I actually like animals more now than I used to. I'd have to think for 10 minutes before I even shot a deer now. And I even said to a guy, I like your, I said, hi, Elsa, to a German shepherd today. She has the sweetest disposition of any animal I've ever seen, any dog I've ever seen. And She's our neighbor's dog. Elsa, and they have another dog named Boone who is the opposite of Elsa. He is a rambunctious young German shepherd. So Jesus confronts Jonah who's upset that his shade tree has withered. What are you upset about, Jonah? My shade tree. The sun is beating on me now. And Jesus says to him, and he did confront Jonah similarly that he did to Paul. Because after that, guess what Jonah did? He became a missionary to the pagans. He became an apostolic prophetic figure to the people of Nineveh. He started churches there. He was remarkably, because he had to go through a conversion. He said, You're, you care about this plant that I made miraculously grow up overnight and then made it miraculously wither, just like I did with the fig tree. You're, you value that. Well, what do you think I value? 120,000 Ninevites and many animals. I won't give that away, but there are many live animals in the production you ladies are going to go see. As I said, my grandson Adrian only said one loud word during the whole production, even though he was in awe through the whole thing and it was llama looked over there was a llama going down the aisle never mind but a lot of other things i don't want to give away too much so continuing in 116 of timothy paul says this but for this reason i received mercy for this reason i received mercy Compare that with Romans 11.32 when all are going to receive mercy. Paul is an example of all receiving mercy because he received mercy as one who most needed it. Compare it with Titus three five. It is not by righteous deeds which we have done, but by his mercy he saved us. So that the prototype, he says, listen, he says it explicitly here. But for this reason, I receive mercy so that... in me first the prototype proto he used the word proto pr omega o t omega o proto so that in me first god would demonstrate as the example en dexatai which actually means paradigm example so that in me as the example the ever-enduring and all-inclusive patience of Christ Jesus as the prototype, again, Hupo tuposin Paul being the pot- prototype of those destined to participate with him in the faithfulness that belongs to the life of the coming messianic age. So that in me, as a prototype, again, as an example, as a paradigmatic eschatological anthropos, in me, first, proto, God would demonstrate as the example, the ever-enduring and all-inclusive patience of Christ Jesus, as the prototype, Paul being the prototype, of those destined to participate with him in the faithfulness that belongs to the life of the coming messianic age. So, and so it is that Paul is the living representation of God's will to save all of humanity, but Paul himself is also a living representation of God's will to save all of Israel. I myself am also an Israelite. Was he defiant? Was he disobedient? Did God stretch his hand out all day long to him? And did he respond by persecuting the church and blaspheming the name of God? Yes, he did. But what happened to him? He was saved by the overflowing grace and the faithfulness and the love that is in Christ Jesus. And so it's going to happen to all of Israel. If he, an Israelite, can be saved, and indeed has been saved by grace and through a faithfulness not his own and not of works, if he was saved through God's prevenient, a word that we're going to bring up more and more in the future, prevenient, P-R-E-V-E-N-I-E-N-T, and irresistible grace, then he can expect all Israel to be saved, just on that basis alone. As Paul was saved, so all Israel will be saved, even as all the nations enter the saving kingdom of God. Roma, the nations. Paul's call is to proclaim the saving gospel to all the nations. So for Paul, his own salvation is linked to the salvation of the totality of the nations to whom he proclaims the word, as it is... Also wed to the salvation of Israel. So in closing, I just want to give you anticipated conclusions, which is a preview of coming attractions. Things, conclusions that we anticipate in Romans 11. One, five of them, and these will be repeated. Israel's situation like that of the pagan nations and humankind in general, as well as all of creation, is such that it can only be rectified or set right by a divine action. Let me say that again. Israel's situation, like that of the pagan nations and humankind at large, as well as all of creation, that situation is such that it can only be rectified or set right by a divine action, which is also known as God's righteousness, dikaiosunae. In Romans one seventeen, which is unveiled in and by the gospel of God about his son. Romans one one to four, Romans one sixteen to seventeen, and all through Romans. Second anticipated conclusion of Romans eleven. God's justice is always in the service of his mercy. For that I quote Fleming Rutledge whose book, The Crucifixion, Understanding the Death of Jesus Christ, is the best I've seen on the subject, mainly because she is like Romelli. She summarizes all the impact of theology on the cross, the theology of the cross, up to this point. I think she's done it remarkably. There's never been a book I've read like hers. I do recommend it. And I do believe that it is most readable. It's more readable than most books on theology. But it's, it's really thick and it's important. But she said, quote, God's justice is always in the service of his mercy. That's the crucifixion, page 155. The third anticipated conclusion. There is no hope of rectification from the human side. There is no hope of rectification, justification, being set right from the human side. No hope. Salvation is of the Lord, comes from the Lord's side, and God rectifies the ungodly. Romans 4, 5. The fourth anticipated conclusion. God does what God intends and what he intends is the recapitulation of all things in his Messiah, Jesus Christ. A thing which God does only in and by the cross of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Fourth point, re- reiterated, God does what God intends. And what he intends is the recapitulation of all things in his Messiah, Jesus Christ, Ephesians 1.10. A thing which God does only in and by the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 6.14 and many other places. Fifth and finally. God is worthy of and will receive. Even as he now does receive from millions. Universal praise. Doxology. Following the universal return. For to him are all things. From him, through him, and to him are all things. So I make the point again that I've made in the past. The parable of the prodigal son is ultimately the narrative of a universal return to God. And we thank you, Father, for the opportunity of studying your word. We thank you for the bank of riches that is available to us in Romans 11 and we've decided to go in Romans 11 because that also is wed to Romans 9 1 and following it's our way of approaching it we thank you for the wealth of mercy and grace and revelation that is revealed and about to be revealed to us in another passage in the Pauline epistles give us the grace It results in the capacity to receive it and benefit to the maximum by what we're about to receive and what we have received tonight. And we thank you, Father, for the privilege of offering a sacrifice.